Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Gregory Turner. And I'm your co-host, Brian J. Henderson. Brian, I think tonight's show is going to shed the light on a lot of things that a lot of us, we didn't have a clue about back in the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you've heard of reformatory schools. When I was growing up, you would hear people say, well, if you don't do that, we're going to send you to reformatory school. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. But, Brian, I had no idea that uh, what we're going to talk about tonight even existed. It's just it's tough. You and I, we've gone, we've talked about this thing for, what, maybe two months now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's it's just a tough, tough situation, but we're going to talk about it tonight. We're going to bring a lot of things to light, and it's just it's a sad situation, but it, it's one that um, our guest tonight is very uh, brave and, and, and bold uh, to come forward now and bring some things out that hopefully this won't happen to anyone else, Brian. Yes, you know, when I first heard about this, I couldn't believe, you know, just how how close we were to, you know, to the issue, you know, and then also just how brutal and ruthless the, you know, the actions that occurred, you know, and you and I, you know, we talked as children, we talked to youth groups, and, you know, we're very close. I have children that, you know, around the same age of, you know, these boys when they were going into this reformatory school and so just to hear about some of the things that we're going to hear about tonight, you know, to be quite honest, it's kind of tough. You know, just to listen to some of the stuff, it's kind of tough. Yes, it is. You know, to, to take it in. But the reality behind it is that you got to listen. you got to take it in because we never want something like that to happen again. Right, right. And we... we uh, We'll let our guests explain where they are right now. We know that uh, a lawsuit is, is, is looming, and, and it's out there right now, we believe. Uh, but we'll let our guests talk about that. But, Brian, you know, I, I want to say this about our guest. Um, it was a, a bad thing that he went through. It was a horrific and horrible situation. But, Brian, he, he made it through it. Uh, there are some things that probably went along with the bad things that happen mentally, you know, just just thinking about it. And it's just mind-blowing that someone can do this to a child, that someone can do this to children, not just one, but many. And some of the results of what happened, Brian, even now it turned out to be death. Death was the final um, answer for a lot of this, which is very sad. And you and I both, we go into detention centers here in Tallahassee and we speak to the youth, and we speak to a lot of the guys that are in jail and in prisons. And uh, uh, for a lot of them, the reason that they're there is something that happened in their childhood. It's something that pushed them to the edge to be um, angry and violent because that's what happened to them. And they're just passing it on because I, I don't know if it's something that they just can't process or if it's just so much anger built up in them. But, Brian, when you treat a person less than a human, you, you're creating, I, I don't want to say you're creating a monster, but a lot of times that's what happens. Yes, yes, I agree. You know, Greg, I want to bring on our guest tonight. Our guest is uh, 
best-selling author Roger Kaiser. And by the age of four, Roger Dean Kaiser had been abandoned, first by his parents and then his grandparents, and he was placed in a Florida orphanage. And unable to adapt to the difficult and often cruel, abusive environment of the orphanage and stigmatized by his repeated attempts to run away, he was transferred to a Florida reform school at age 12. And, you know, we're going to let him tell the rest of the story about that, you know, because I don't want to give too much of the information away. I want you to hear it from, you know, his words on what happened to him. Yes. So uh, with that being said, we welcome you, Mr. Kaiser. Well, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, it's a real pleasure to be here and talk with the audience tonight. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Brian, I'm going to let you go first with your, with your question. Well, first of all, you know, I started off by telling everybody what happened to you as a youth, how you were abandoned by your parents and your grandparents, and then you went through an orphanage. You know, and I, I would assume that back then, instead of having foster care systems, they had orphanages where they would just place all these children together, you know. And I don't know if you remember, you know, how far back you remember, but what was it like to be there? And how was it, was it very, I would assume it was difficult for you. Well, it was, it was, it was, it was really very unusual. I, uh, going back a little farther than that, what actually happened was uh, my uh, mother was married to, um, to a gentleman who was my stepfather who was in the Navy, and we were living in Hayward, California. I believe I was four. My sister was three. And my mother just had a baby, and uh, my stepfather didn't come to the delivery because he had been gone for over a year and a half, and he knew that he was not, could not be the father. And uh, so after the, uh, our mother brought the baby home, uh, she took off with the guy that evidently was the father of the baby and left my sister and I in a house for almost a week alone with the baby. Well, the baby died. And finally the police came, came in through the kitchen window, and they found me sitting in the living room holding this dead baby trying to feed it cornflakes. And uh, then they, they, took, they called uh, my stepfather, who uh, came down from uh, San Diego, uh, I remember being on a train because I, got, I remember getting sick looking out the window. And he took us from uh, Hayward, California to uh, Lakeland, Florida, and put me with his parents, um, Mr. and Mrs. Lavender, which are deceased now. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just did not like me because I was really not related to them by blood. And all I remember hearing was, uh, we're going to take this kid and put him in the Sunnyland Training Center for retarded children. And we don't want uh, no kid around here who has a squaw for a mother. Mm. And so this went on and on, and they just constantly beat me. And then finally one day um, uh, I crossed the road to go over uh, to the uh, school across the street to play on the merry-go-round. And uh, Mrs. Lavender came out there, a rather heavyset woman with a leather strap, and uh, started beating me. And a teacher named Mrs. Harrell came out and said, you know, you better stop them and call the police. You're going to kill that kid. And uh, so Mr. Lavender grabbed me by the ear and uh, took me back across the street, and they were beating me the whole way. And I'm screaming and yelling, and they get me in the house. And evidently, uh, my sister was there, and part of this I learned from her uh, just a matter of maybe 10 years ago when, when I finally found her, well, maybe 15 years ago. And when we got in there, they beat me so badly that I had messed on myself. And so... Uh, Mr. Lavender jerked my pants off, rubbed the mess in my face, and then he took me and put me up in the sink, rinsed me off, took me out on the pickle porch, and hosed me down. 
And then when the police arrived, you know, they wondered where I was and wanted to, you know, see what was going on. And when they found me, I was standing out in the backyard uh, naked, holding my pants up to the sun so they would dry. And so the police took me and took me to the Rose Keller Home Orphanage in uh, in Lakeland, Florida. And I was there probably about six months and then transferred, became a ward of the, of the state of Florida. Uh, and then transferred me to the Children's Home Society in Jacksonville, Florida. Trying to remember back, I don't really remember, um, I I never remember being, I remember my mother, but I don't remember being in a family home. I don't remember her even being there, uh, other than not as a mother, you know, like you would sit down as a child to have dinner. I I don't remember any of that. I, I don't know if that ever really happened. Um, and so when I went to the orphanage, I, I don't believe that I was even family-oriented at that time. I, I, I'd gone through so much uh, cruel and unusual treatment um, that I almost looked at, at the orphanage as being sort of my savior. And there were lots of kids there to play with. And uh, so it really, I suppose, wasn't that bad at first until... Uh, various things started happening where, you know, we started learning at five years old. I think I was six by then. Uh, one of the matrons uh, started molesting me at six years old all the way up till I was 12. Um, uh, not having any toys, uh, being worked every day. You went to school, uh, Spring Park School was right next door to the Children's Home Society. Uh, you came home and you worked until you ate, and then you went, home, you went back home to the uh, dormitory. You took a bath, and then you went to bed. In a lot of my stories, I've had a lot of questions asked about, um, well, there seems to be a lot of discrepancies in your stories when you write them, because one time you say you're 12, next time you say you're 14, you're 6, you're 7, you're 4. Um, and that's probably a valid point. And the reason when I write that it's so difficult for me to to, to figure that out is because being in an orphanage is like um, being locked in your room at home, and you never come out of your room, and you stay there for 12 years from the time you're, say, 2 or 3 or whatever it is to the time you're 12 or 13. And then somebody comes along and they say, uh, well, we know you had a birthday every year. What year was that when you had that, uh, that orange frosting on your cake? Well, you have no idea what year that was or what your age was because you have no sense of time or direction because... Everything was identical. Every day was identical. You never went to the mall. You never went to a movie. You never left that room. So it becomes almost impossible for me to know, you know, uh, to, to get the story straight. So I, I sort of have to guess. In fact, I have a timeline on my computer uh, that I've been working on for almost uh, six years. Uh, when I would hear a song, I said, well, I was in the orphanage, and that's when this happened or that happened. And then so I start putting my life together. I think I was... Uh, in 1977, I had developed cancer at age 24, and uh, they'd given me six months to live, and that's when I started trying to find out exactly what happened to me, and that was when I first got a birth certificate. And all those years, even after going in the Army and having served time in the reform school and also in prison for buying a six-pack of beer at a party, uh, my name, all my records were under K-A-I-S-E-R, Roger Dean Kaiser. But my name was really Roger D. Kaiser, K-I-S-E-R. And my birthday was not January 21st. It was November the 20th, 1945. So I was actually three years older or two years older than what I was the first part of my life. And uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, when, when, when you live in such a disp- 
functional thing, uh, you know, and, and then you're being caught up in the juvenile system and you're sitting there and you're scared. Um, you're sitting there with your hands pushed between your knees, clamping your legs together, and, and people are walking around and talking and typing on typewriters and phones ringing, and you know that nobody cares about you. And so moving up to the reform school, when we would run away from the orphanage or uh, we would take a girl's bicycle from the dormitory at night because we didn't have any bicycles, or we would climb the pine tree or we'd get on top of the little Kiwanis building, um, they would constantly um, write us up, call the police, and actually take us to the juvenile hall. And then after you do this for six, seven, eight, nine years, uh, you become known as an incorrigible child. And the judge looks at this record. He says, son, you've got a, you know, a record six inches thick. You, you say, but I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I, yeah, I climbed the trees and I took the girl's bicycle one night. And, yeah, I went to the bathroom and I got a drink of water a whole bunch of times without asking permission. He said, son, you just can't follow rules, can you? So off to the reform school I go. And, uh, um, of course, then again I'm thinking, well, okay, here I, I we drive into this place, uh, Freddie Hutchins and I, which was another boy from the orphanage, and we see these great big dormitories. We see these manicured lawns. We see this gymnasium and a swimming pool and everything. We think we are in heaven. I mean, this has to be wonderful. There's a world out here. Well, and where was where was this again? What was, what was this was in, in in Mariana, Florida. At that time, it was known as the Florida School for Boys at Mariana, the Florida Industrial School for Boys, which is now the Dozier, uh, the Arthur G. Dozier School for Boys, still in Mariana. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this um, before we get into the um, get into that when you were actually there. You know, when all of this stuff was going on and you were being mistreated by your by your own family. Did you think that something was wrong with you? Did you think, why is all of this happening to me? I know you had friends that you went to school with, and they probably, something like this probably never happened to them. But did you ever think, why is this happening to me? No, not really, because I, I had somebody um, ask me one time, um, were you, you must have been a very unhappy child. Well, I wasn't an unhappy child. I wasn't a happy child. But I wasn't an unhappy child. I was just there. Uh, I mean, the kids at Spring Park School back in, in, in those days were, were just as cruel to uh, uh, to us kids from the orphanage as they were to anybody else, whether it was a black child or anybody else. They mocked us. They called us the same names that they would call black people. Um, they called us idiots. Um, but it, I can't say that my feelings weren't hurt by that. They were. But I never looked at it as a it's really hard to put it into words because it's sort of like that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of accept it as that. Right. right. And But the damage is done not at that time to a child. The reason that I became a child advocate is because, not because of what happened to me as a child. It's because of what happened to me as a child that makes me have the memories in my head that I have today as a 63-year-old man. I don't want children to grow up with those memories. Right, right. You know, and I'm listening to your story, and the the thing that kind of gets me about, you know, the whole situation is that I know children who have experienced similar types of things to happen to them. I, I can recall one in particular, and I won't name her name, but, you know, she had been, you know, done the same manner where her family, you know, her, I think, um, her 
mother had passed away at a, when she was, you know, at a young age, and she was living with family members, and her family members, uh, one in particular, would constantly beat her. And um, actually, she was living with uh, another family member, and then when that family member passed away, the family members that she went to live with after that would just constantly beat her and mistreat her, and, you know, she ended up bouncing in and out of foster homes where, you know, she just wasn't a happy person. And it took, you know, her finally being coming an adult where she finally started to get herself and get her mind back into motion. But, you know, it was a lot of emotional damage there. Well, I was almost 50 years old before I reached that that uh, that, that period. And that's I'm 63 now, so that was only 13 years ago. Wow. It took me that long to recover. Mm. Um, you, know, you know, we hear we hear about so many kids that uh, get into trouble. And like I said before, it always comes back to their youth. It, it, it's always something a teacher said or, or someone said something to them or mistreated them. And, and, and I'm so glad that you're an advocate and you're doing what you're doing because I, I tell you, uh, it is a sad situation when you have a grown man still having to deal with something he couldn't process as a child, and it seems he can't process it now. And well, it, it's just so hard. Well, what it does is is this. Uh, once, well, being mistreated as a child does one of two things. Uh, it either turns you uh, into a Charlie Manson, or it does just the opposite, which it did to me. It puts so much apathy in me that I cannot stand to see anything hurt, whether it's an animal or a child. Um, so in most cases, I suppose it goes the Charlie Manson way. Uh, but one thing you said, which is absolutely true, absolutely, and I've written about this numerous times, there is a monster that is created when you're mistreated as a child. Mm-hmm. You may be able to contain that monster uh, up to a point, but there comes a certain point where if everything was to go wrong, uh, that monster would explode. It is an uncontrollable monster. Mm-hmm. It, it is, I can't say it's a hatred. It's a combination of many things. It's a combination of disappointment, of distrust, of feeling that no one loves you or cares about you, a feeling of not be having any self-worth, of being worth to anything to the world. Um, I mean... When when that monster starts to come out, you could win the lottery of fifty million dollars, and it could not conquer that monster. Right. right. It just couldn't. It it become it, what ha- it, it, it it is a slow process that grows up with a child uh, when you become afraid, and when you, when you get into the state of of uh, of being of not being happy and not being unhappy. You remain there for years, and this is one of the reasons I think that I've been married six times. Uh, every one of my wives told me I was a wonderful man, I was a kind man, but that I was the most unaffectionate B-A-S-T-A-R-D they had ever seen. <laughs> and four of them said, you know the reason that we couldn't stay with you any longer? And I said, well, I mean, I was always responsible. I worked. I never cheated on my wives. I did everything a husband was supposed to do. And they said, because we've seen you laugh many times, but never once have we ever seen you truly smile. And I've never smiled. Mm. Mm. But it becomes that that deadness becomes who you are as a child. It never leaves. And pretty soon, 
uh, you might one day be successful. You might be uh, a lawyer. You might be the president of the United States, but you're going to be an unhappy lawyer. You're going to be an unhappy president. That mm-hmm. never leaves you. Right. Take us with you on your first day at the uh, place in Mariana. What what was that like when I heard you say when you drove up you saw the, the 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 beautiful landscaping and that type of thing. But when you got inside, what was that like to go inside and see the other boys? Uh, well, it probably wouldn't have been too bad except for one thing, and I have to be careful here because the books that I wrote, the White House boys, uh, I've written 19 books on child abuse, and I always watch my language. I always figure out a way to talk about sexual child abuse in such a manner that anybody can read it, whether it's in church or whether it's in the gutter. It doesn't matter. I always use clean language. But in this book, I had to use the language. Now, I'm not going to use it tonight, but I'm going to put it in, a, in another way. Uh, we went in and we signed in, and then we were taken to a psychologist's office. His name was Dr. Robert Curry. And we sat down, and he looked me straight in the eye. Now, here I'm 12 years old. And he looked me straight in the eye, he looked over his black rimmed glasses, and he says, again, I'm putting this in a good way, how many times did you do it with your mother? And I said, well, I don't have a mother. Oh, what about your sister? Everybody has a mother. You did it, didn't you? No, sir, Mr. Curry, I don't have a mother. And that was just devastating to me, not only because somebody would say that nasty thing to me, the fact that I didn't have a mother anyway was just devastating to me. And so that right there put me right back on the same track this wonderful feeling I had when I drove in about this wonderful place, the state of Florida was my parents that were now going to help me and save me. And so I was right back in the exact same concentration camp as the orphanage. Mm. Mm. So it ruined everything right off the bat. Mm. Wow. That's tough. You know, and again, you know, Greg and I, we talked to a lot of kids, and, you know, I've actually had, uh, in my family's uh, foster children that have come through my home. And, you know, you see the results of all the years that they've suffered in the foster care system. And then when you try to help, you know, because most of the children that have come through our home have been older kids. They're like 14, 15, 16 years old. And by the time they're that age, they're numb to affection. They're numb to someone actually showing them true and genuine love. And if somebody does show it, they don't believe it. Exactly. Because it's only going to last for a short time, and they know it. You know, I can recall one kid where he would hoard food, and he would he would hide it in my son's closet. And, you know, I was like, we kept having this problem with sugar ants. You know, and once you get sugar ants coming in from somewhere, it's hard to get rid of them. Get rid of them, it sure is. And we traced them to the top of the closet. And I'm like, well, why in the heck would they be in the top of the closet? So as I began to go up into the top of the closet, the kid tried to stop me. He says, no, it's mine. It's mine. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I get up there, and there's food in plastic bags that he's wrapped in the plastic bags and put them in Ziploc bags that he was storing up in the closet with his clothes because he felt like we were going to just kick him out soon, so he'd better put some food away. Well, you know, one one piece of advice that I would like to, to give uh, from experience uh, as a child, having been in that situation, and believe me, I in the orphanage, I, I saved many, many bread crusts to eat later. Um, one of the things that I see 
that foster parents have to understand is this. Um, I have a lot of foster parents that have contacted me, and they said, well, you know, we went out here, and we brought little Johnny and little Susie into our home, and we just can't quite figure it out. I mean, we know they were mistreated, but we've given them a loving home. We're buying them toys. We're giving them all this thing, and they just don't seem to appreciate uh, what we're doing for them. We just don't understand it, and maybe we should just take them back. Hmm. The thing is, is this. Um, I met a family called Mr. and Mrs. Usher um, who come to the juvenile hall and took me home for Thanksgiving dinner when I was 12 or 13. And uh, I was scared to death. I'd never been in a real home before where you sit down, you know, with people at dinner. And everything that the state had done for me, this woman that night before she took me back to the juvenile hall, took me out on her front porch. And Well, they had asked me earlier in the day. I was sitting in the living room afraid to move, and she says, would you like a Coca-Cola? I wanted a Coca-Cola so badly, but I was too afraid to accept it. I was too afraid to even get up uh, to go to the bathroom. That's how afraid I was. And so that night, she offered me a Coca-Cola. We sat on the porch from like 10 o'clock at night till 4 in the morning talking with me. And that woman, finally, when we got up to go to bed, she we, uh, we drank our Coke, and we talked, and then she hugged me. And I didn't know what to do. My arms just fell limp beside me because I was just a combination of embarrassed and scared. But the feeling that she gave me um, was, was, was very strange. And, and I remember going to bed, and I think that's probably the first time I ever cried uh, because of that aspect of, of love. Uh, any other crying I'd ever done was because of a beating or, or, or whatever. But the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that sometimes, um, sometimes, the job of a foster parent is not to save a child. The job of a foster parent, maybe their job is to save the person to be a good father or a good mother or a good grandmother or a good grandfather. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it takes years for that love to soak through. And, in fact, I'm getting a little emotional now because of the ushers. Mm-hmm. But it, it, did, it didn't save me as a child. I was already gone. It was too late for me. But they did save me as a man. They saved me as a father. And because they saved me as a man, I have saved many other children. I've saved five children last year from committing suicide. Wow. And they are responsible for that. Not because they saved the child, but because they didn't give up and it saved the man. I noticed, uh, I read on CNN and I saw on a couple of other places where there's a lawsuit filed now. And if you would, tell us, uh, what's going on with that, and and how how you feel about it? How do you feel um, the state is doing? Do you think they're trying to cover it up, or are they just kind of um, out front with it? What, what's going on? Well, I think Governor Chris wants to do the right thing. Uh, of course, I I don't have any faith in politicians whatsoever. I mean, if you're a politician, as far as I'm concerned, you're just a legal crook. Um, I think there's enough heat coming down right now to where they want to find out, uh, you know, where these 50 to 200 boys went that just sort of disappeared out there in addition to the 32 bodies that we showed them out there in the graves out there uh, uh, on, on, the, on the Blacks compound, which was on the other side of the highway. Um, there were so many boys killed uh, that just sort of disappeared, you know, um, that nobody cared about. And, and, and the thing that's terrible about this is that, when I look back at the five or six hundred boys that were there, 
I cannot recall anybody that had done anything really bad other than the worst thing was probably stealing a car. Most of them were there for stealing a hubcap or smoking a cigarette or skipping school. And uh, it was just terrible. I mean, um, it's just, uh, it was just the most unreal thing. I I tried for years to expose this, even through the governor's office, when uh, several of the, the, the former governors, I don't recall most of them's name, and even Jed Bush, and they just wouldn't believe me. They wouldn't believe that the what I what I could only describe as a Nazi concentration camp for children, where people were being beaten to death, and people were being molested, and people were being taken out and and dumped in bodies were being dumped in holes. Holes. Kids as 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 young as nine years old. Uh, they were beaten. I was beaten so badly that my underwear had to be surgically removed from my buttocks. Nobody would believe me, and. So they say, um, well, why did it take almost 50 years? Well, the reason it took 50 years was because uh, a lot of these boys that survived uh, grew up. And so what do we have now? Now who do we have coming forward? We don't have a bunch of juvenile delinquents who were smoking cigarettes and stealing hubcaps. We have two guys who are millionaires. We have a professor from a major university. We have an author. We have four or five businessmen. We have people who who have become a, a part of normal society, and now they're coming back and they're saying, "Well, wait a minute. Maybe there is something to the. We're not listening to a bunch of juvenile delinquents now. We're 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 listening to uh, you know the, the people that are talking are, are responsible citizens. So maybe there is something. Right. And so that's how this started. Um, whether it's going to be whether the truth is going to be found out, I don't know. Uh, a lot of these people are dead who did these beatings and killings, other than a couple in Mariana, which is uh, Troy Tidwell, and he says, well, yeah, we, we spanked those boys, but uh, we never beat them. I mean, I respected them, and they respected me, and that's the way it was. And uh, I mean, this book that I've got coming out, again, the White House boys, uh, it, it's just horrific uh, what happened. I mean, boys just beating until, I mean... I worked in the hospital at 13 years old, 12 and 13 years old, and and and, and well, I actually went to the reform school twice, and, and there was a doctor there uh, named Dr. Wexler, and he he was a pretty nice guy. He he had two daughters, so we knew him real well because any teenage boys know where the two girls live, which was on the other side of the compound. <laughs> and uh, we would actually go in there, and he had glasses that were maybe a half inch thick; he couldn't see. And we would go in there, and these boys would get beat at the White House. We actually had to suture them up at 12 years old. I mean, we'd be doing this. Wow. It was unbelievable. Wow. And uh, so uh, that's how it came about. And then, of course, they invited us up to the closing of the White House on October the 21st. Uh, five of us went up there. In fact, one of the guys that came forward has been with the Department of Alabama Corrections. He's retiring after 26 years. And uh, the governor's people was there, and we gave our speeches. And I tell you, he let them have it, along with me and, and, and three or four of the other guys. And when we went through the White House, um, which is just a small building made out of concrete and steel, and even the guards that were working there today, when they walked through there, there, was, there were two female guards in front of me. And I, when I say a cell, I'm not talking about a cell like a clean uh, jail cell or a prison cell. I'm talking about something that looks like something that would be in, in a dungeon in the in the bottom of a castle. It looks exactly like that, these cells. And uh, these women walked in there, and there was blood still on the walls. There was blood on the floor, fingerprints with blood where the, your, the hands had 
uh, gone down the wall trying to climb the wall while they were beating it, and their hands were over their face, and it said, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. They themselves could not believe that that happened there. Yes, I I, I know that you said when they were doing the beatings, they they had a fan uh, going so it could drown out the screams. Right. That was the one thing that I asked them not to do when we went in. I said, I can go in. I can go in the White House, but please don't turn on that fan. And they said, the fan's no longer there. And uh, so we went in. And uh, But that was, it was to muffle, and it was a loud fan. I mean, this would be like an industrial fan. I mean, it was powerful. And that would muffle, somewhat muffle the screams. And, of course, the walls are like uh, maybe 18 inches thick, 12 to 18 inches thick with concrete and steel. Uh, so, you know, you probably couldn't hear them through the walls anyway. Wow. Wow, that's just you know, and I'm I'm not trying to play like devil's advocate for right. the uh, the other former governors and the folks who really wouldn't listen, but you know when you when you talk about it, it is just absolutely unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I'm, you know that in in our country we would treat our own people that you know that somebody in our country would actually treat Americans that way. I know. Well, the thing is... And then American youth at that, you know? Well, somebody asked me once, and like I said, when I walked out of the White House, I was so bloody and so cut up with my underwear beaten into my buttocks, and my shirt was torn off. And when I walked into the main office before going to Mr. Haddon's office, the woman looked at me, and she'd seen me at least once a week, if not twice a week, going to, to Robert Curry's office, the psychologist. He was over our compound. And she said, who are you? And I said, I'm Roger Kaiser. She couldn't even recognize who I was. That's how bloody I was. And I walked over to Mr. Haddon's office, and they set me down on a chair on a wooden bench. And uh, then I stood up, and I couldn't hardly stand because I could hardly walk. And the man says, you better sit back down. And I said, but I, I need to go to the bathroom. He pointed to the door over there. He said, make it quick. I turned around to walk into the bathroom, and I was trying not to cry because you have other boys. And, of course, all the men that are coming forward now and writing their stories for this new book I'm working for, uh, you know, they're they're telling the truth now, but back then you had to act like you could take it. You were a man, even though you were 12 years old. Yeah. And, and uh, so I started walking to the bathroom, and I said, one day I'm going to get out of here, and I'm going to tell people what you're doing. He says, hey, bud, that's a good way to wake up dead tomorrow morning. You understand that? And I said, yes, sir. And I went into the bathroom, and I looked in the mirror, and when I did, I saw nothing but a bloody monster, and I screamed. And then I covered my mouth real fast because I didn't want the boys to know I was crying. And I had to urinate, and I went over to the toilet, and I unzipped my pants, and I couldn't urinate. So I decided, well, I'll take down my pants, and I'll sit down on the toilet and wait. Well, I got my pants down, but my underwear wouldn't come down because they were beaten into my buttocks, and my legs were all black and blue. And when I say black, I mean as black as a black crayola, as black as a black piece of leather, and it felt like leather. And uh, pretty soon I came back out. I couldn't use the bathroom, and my cottage house father, Mr. Sealander, was there. And uh, he looked at me and he pointed, you know, and I got into his car and drove back to the cottage. And I stood outside his office while he called and said, uh, you know, why was this boy beaten? And they said, well, he slipped on the diving board and he said a curse word. He said S-H-I-T. And he says, you would beat a boy for saying that? And then he took me to the hospital and uh, Nurse Walmack soaked me in Epsom salts for about an hour. Then the doctor came in and they took the underwear out of my buttocks and then uh, sutured me up. Um, and this happened to hundreds and hundreds of boys. Uh, uh, but the thing is, somebody asked me one day, they said, well, 
you know, uh, back in that day, uh, you know, it was very, uh, everything was segregated. And they said, uh, I hear that it was a lot worse on the black boys. Can you, uh, can you, uh, do you agree with that? I said, let me tell you this. I said, there is no way, no way that they could possibly have beaten anybody worse than they did me. It's absolutely impossible. But they still beat the black boys worse. That's the only way I can put it. It was that bad. You, it's impossible to beat anybody more than you did me, and they still beat the black boys worse than they did me. Wow. And, That's and, how bad it was. And right now, the, um, it's alleged now that some of the bodies are still buried out there. I think it was it 32 crosses that are out there. Right, there's 32 crosses, but that that's just a fraction of it. I mean, we already know that 11 of those died in a fire. Uh, what they did is they uh, now this was some time back before I got there, but a couple of the uh, house fathers uh, actually wanted to go downtown to Mariana to visit a house of ill repute, so they handcuffed all the boys to their beds. And when they did, the stove fell over and it burnt the house down, burned all the kids up. So they're supposed to be buried out there. But the thing that's disgusting about it is, not that that's not bad enough, that uh, they just took them out there and dug a hole and dumped them in it. Uh, I don't even think they were. I think they were put in bags and dumped out there. So we know 11 of the boys burnt to death. Three of the bodies out there are the uh, are three boys who died of influenza. We have no idea who the others are. Uh, there's there's a lot of debate now over. Um, and again, I, I suppose a lot of your your younger listeners will not understand what I'm fixing to say. Uh, you fellows are probably, I'm not sure what your ages are, but I'm sure you remember back to the 50s and 60s when uh, all the racial stuff was going on. When this was being, when we were being beaten, uh, the racial thing was so bad at that reform school that it, it, they would not beat a black boy on the white bed or a white boy on the black bed. You were not even allowed to touch it. You were not even allowed to say that you liked the Harlem Globetrotters or you'd get the crap beat out of you. And so we said, well, since it was that way, you know, we know there's 50 to 200 boys that were missing, and it was so racial, I don't know if they would have even considered, even with murder, of even burying a white boy on the black side. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the puzzling part. But here, 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 here's another thing, and this is where it gets even more so than uh, uh, than just the killings and the beatings. Um, a lot of the boys were being loaded up. Uh, well, one of the things that's going to surprise you, one of the things I found out in my investigation was <laughs> this. I could hardly believe this, uh, but it's true. Uh, would you, either one of you fellows, have any idea who ran back in the fifties and the sixties? Who at before DJJ? Who actually ran the uh, the Re- Florida Reform School? No, no, no. It, it was the department, the Florida Department of Agriculture. Wow, that's who ran it. And they had a big farm. We had a slaughterhouse. We had uh, acres and hundreds and hundreds of acres of uh, peanuts and carrots and vegetables. And I mean, we had everything. Well, the boys were being loaded up. Some of the older boys, especially the uh, the boys that uh, weren't white, but they weren't black, so you know you, we could, they could handle them. They were sort of like the ones from Miami, you know, the uh, Puerto Ricans and those, you know. And they would load them up on buses, and they would take them downtown Mariana. And the elite of Mariana, and they're not going to like hearing this. The elite of Mariana at that time would uh, have these boys unloading all these uh, uh, railroad cars and put uh, feed and grain. 
into their stores. And then, of course, they were bringing the meat and, and the vegetables were all being brought to the town and the elite were getting those and they were paying people under the table. I mean, this place had gone crazy. It was just absolutely absurd what was going on. Wow. And I, I, I did get a letter here uh, not long ago from, uh, from a Henry Beavis. Um, and this gives you some idea because a lot of times they say, well, you know, a lot of these stories uh, that you're, you're telling here, you know, we're not sure uh, if a lot of this is just scuttlebutt going around, you know, amongst the boys. But I have this letter here I'd like to read you, which is real short, that I got from Henry Beavis. He now lives in Tennessee, and I think he's 77. Uh, let me get down here to it. This will tell you what it was like, what was going on. The, towns, the town knew what was going on. They knew about the killings. They knew about the murders. They knew about all the boys being used as slave labor. Uh, and again, any time that I tell you what I'm telling you, I'm telling you from the white perspective, it was worse on the black boys. It, it was ten times worse on them. Whatever they were doing to us, it was 20 times worse on them. And uh, I know uh, one story where they actually beat one black boy so bad that they actually, uh, with a a strap with the uh, piece of sheet metal in it, that actually cut his genitals off. That's how bad it was. Uh, Hmm. This should be coming up here in just a second. Uh, But I was so glad to get this letter because it just gives a, the frame of my, here it is right here. Henry R. Beavis, dear Mr. Kaiser, uh, I've, uh, from the news I found your website. My name is Henry R. Beavis. I'm white, and I was raised not far from Mariana, near a little town of Bascom. I will be 75 years old next month. All through my school years, we heard of the abuse at the school. As young kids, we did not know of anything that could be done about what was going on at the school. Sometimes I would hear my daddy talking about the other, talking to the other men about the school, but I dared not say anything lest they knew that I had heard what they were talking about. I am thankful that I grew up in a stable home on a farm just one mile north of Bascom. My daddy and granddaddy ran the local farm repair shop. They also had a blacksmith shop attached to the repair building. My daddy also appraised livestock for the PCA. The farm we lived on had been financed by the PCA, and daddy was offered a job, and he took it. Some of the things that we heard about the school were from different parts of the county and maybe from surrounding counties. My mother was an RN and worked all over Jackson County doing nursing and homes. I also heard a few times my mother talking to other women of the church about some of the terrible things and the terrible abuse going on at the school. From what I can remember, people in general seemed to be afraid to try to do anything. Some thought that this abuse was just maybe isolated cases. But in those times, people were afraid to say anything, as you could never tell who might be involved in these cases. Some would say, well, I'm not going to get burned out tonight or have my livestock poisoned, or shot at night. So apparently at least some of the grown-up men and women knew, uh, knew of or knew someone uh, or knew some of the people who worked at the school. In those times, uh, those were some, there were some very rough men in Jackson County and the surrounding counties. I wish that I could say or do something to help you out, but at least I can say that I've always remembered what I heard at the time when I was growing up near Bascom. Something like these memories kind of get pushed back into a person's mind and then you do not think much about it until your mind has uh, has a trigger like the news stories that I've seen on the news lately. I'm going to write down, I'm going to write some of my cousins who still live in that area and see what they can remember from long ago. I've been living in Tennessee since 1963. I moved up here to go to work for the United States Air Force in research and development work. I worked for over 31 years and I, will re- and I have been retired for 14 years at the end of this month. 
I wish everyone a Merry Christmas, Henry R. Beavis. So see, even that supports that the town knew what was going on out there. But there was so much money being made off of the farm, off of the being paid under the table, that nobody would do anything. They were afraid to do anything. Wow. You know, it's just sad. You know, I mean, I I don't even know how to put it. You know, that, and like you said before, you know, this is from your perspective and from the white male perspective. And you said they were doing the black kids ten times worse. Absolutely, without, without a doubt whatsoever. Just, the, I mean, can you just imagine if what they did, how horrific what they did to you? Wow. I mean, it's it's hard to even envision how a human being could could even bring themselves to do something like this. I know. Uh, let me let me if I can read you one other thing. This is the one story that got to me more than any other. I got this about maybe a week ago in the mail. My wife had to had to actually transcribe this. And what's sad about this? And I hope I can read this without getting emotional. This is from a a guy who died four years ago. His name is uh, Ellis Edward Adams Sr. And I've got a picture of him. Here's a boy holding some fish. And, and believe me, he does not look like a criminal at all. Just a young kid. And his dying wish on his deathbed, he died, I think, at 54 years old. His dying wish is that someday somebody would expose what happened to him. And here is his, uh, the letter he wrote on his deathbed. It seems as, and I hope I can read this because I get emotional every time I read it. Even thinking about it, I get emotional. It, it seemed as though I was at the mercy of everyone and everything. This was around 1961 or so. I remember something terrible, very terrible happening there. It was the most horrible night of my life. I can't forget that night. It has been engraved in my mind. And I've become a very angry man and am tormented with this memory. The first time I remember the name or title of the White House, I was around 11 years old. I was placed in a reform school, namely a place called Mariana School for Boys. I was sent there for skipping school by Judge Howell in Tampa, Florida. I was pla- it was a place of inhuman torture and corporal punishment. I remember one night a man came into my cottage. I was in number eight cottage, Polk Cottage. I was awakened. I guess it was around midnight by a Mr. Sealander. He drove an Austin Healy or MG convertible, and I knew Mr. Sealander. He was my house father. I believe it was green or black. He was a small frame man, dark hair with a mustache. He seemed like he was possibly of English heritage. He awakened me, and I was sleeping soundly in hospital pajamas. They were light blue, very thin. When he awakened me, he took me in his personal car and drove me to a building behind the kitchen named the White House. There was one door in the front facing, I think, east. It was a small building. I remember this big door opening with a key and a corridor, very narrow. And on each end of this hallway, there was a small room, one on either side, without doors. Now, that was the black and white beating room. Uh, the rooms only had a small bed in it. It seems like, like the rooms looked to be about the same size. I asked him why I was there, but he didn't answer me. He was waiting for someone else to arrive. Right inside the door, there was a small bed. I think I sat there waiting, very scared. I looked above my head on the wall, or the wall behind me, or above me. At first, I thought they were going to just lock me up. But after I saw those straps, long ones, thick ones, and short ones, they reminded me of the razor straps that hung on the the side of a barber's chair. Two more men arrived. One had only one arm. Mr. Tidwell and Mr. Walter. 
after seeing those straps, I knew something horrible was going to happen to me. It just seemed to fall into place. I was taken into a room and placed on a small bed about three foot wide and five foot long. The bed was near the the bed was near the floor and had a filthy, bloody mattress on it. I was told to hold on to the end of the bed and not to move or cry out. I then remember the sound of something cutting through the air, followed by a pain I could not describe, the most horrible pain a human can even imagine. It hurt so terribly bad, I would try to get off the bed. God, please make them stop beating me. But they beat me, and they beat me, and they beat me so bad. I can't write any more about this right now. God, make them stop beating me. I have to leave before my kids get home. I don't want them to see me this way. I'll finish in a second. Then he continued. I don't think such pain, I never I never thought that such pain existed, but it was very real. I could never forget the pain and the fright I felt that night. Today, I really believe no one, not even a POW anywhere, ever felt such pain, physical and or mental pain. The thought that bothers me the most today is why they named it the White House number 16 behind the kitchen. The smell of sweat and blood on the bed. The sound of the large fan that somewhat drowned out the sounds of the screams. My only thought was, God, please help them. Please help them stop beating me. I can't imagine how I survived the pain, physical, mental, and emotional. God, please stop this, please. I get very angry when I think of what they did to my body, only 10 or 11 years old. I can still smell the inside of that building and the very small bed with those little bodies with blood and sweat and the stench in those rooms. They weren't sick. They enjoyed what they did. I can only wish that I could kill those bastards. No one can even imagine the pain I endured. Ellis Edward Adams. The man had to die with that thought in his head. Mm. That's tough. That's tough. You know, and uh, how can you send a child to a place like this and you think, you know, he, he may may have stolen a car or skipped school, but when you get him in there and you mistreat him like that and you return him back to society, you have created a monster. Well, the thing is, is see, back in those days, they thought they could make a kid be good by beating the badness out of him. Well, it didn't work. I mean, you can only beat a dog for so long before they turn around and bite you. Right. Right. And to, with, with in today's society, with, with the system that's that's out there now, and I want to ask you this, a lot of the kids are going to the detention centers. A lot of them are going to jail. Do you think that they're being rehabilitated now? Before they release them back out into the, and um, um, release them back into society. Well, no, I, I, I really, well, that's a hard question to answer because here's the problem. The problem is you can take the boys in there, and the main thing is controlling them, mm-hmm. and so that they don't hurt society or hurt themselves until hopefully one day they mature and uh, can get out on their own, and make rational. Uh, decisions. The problem here is that most of these boys, for one reason or another, um, you know, have got on the wrong track. And you can't take them in there and control them and give them an education and feed them and clothe them and house them and not do something for the damage that was done in their heads and in their hearts and in their minds. If you don't change that damage, then the rest of it is fruitless. 
Right. I mean, what good is it if you come out with a guy that has uh, it comes comes out of reform school and he and he, and he was smart enough to to end up with a uh, a doctorate degree? Well, if he's going to come out and be a murderer, well, what what good is a degree? Right. Right. So where are you right now with your with your books and uh, your speaking? I, I don't know if you do any speaking engagements or not, but what 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 are you doing right now? Well, basically, I'm working on. Uh, like I say, I have a book coming out. It's already on uh, Amazon.com and at HCIbooks.com called "The White House Boys and American Tragedy." Uh, actually, I'm getting the final copy tomorrow, and then it'll go to print in two or three days. Mm-hmm. And I'm working on another book, which is one of the stories I just read you um, uh, from this gentleman uh, right here. Uh, it's called A Brotherhood of Children, which is not really going to be released to bookstores. It's it's going a book that I'm going to self-publish because I think that every one of these men, there's like maybe 80 of them, and I have like 50 of their stories, and it's called A Brotherhood of Children. And uh, uh, the um, I'm going to publish this and then have it probably on my website. Um, but that's mainly what I'm doing now is, uh, I suppose the last 10 years I've been working, uh, trying to uh, help a lot of the kids who live in orphanages, um, like the Baxley Children's Home in Baxley, Georgia, and, and that's because my heart just has always been in the orphanage because that was my home. Um, and right now I'm really tied up doing this and, I know CNN is fixing to do a big investigation or a big story on this, and they've been investigating as well as the uh, St. Petersburg Times. So I guess I'm going to more or less be directed uh, by what I do, by you know what happens on this. I know the right. FBI is going around now talking with the various men, and and, right. uh, and so I'm waiting for them to come and talk with me, and then we'll see where to go from there. What, what as, do you? Go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, as far as the lawsuit, of course, we're not sure what's going to happen there because. Uh, there is um, uh, a couple of problems, and one is the uh, statute of limitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have actually filed the lawsuit. Uh, our, we have five or six lawyers down in St. Petersburg who took the case. And uh, they filed the case, and they're going to see how the courts rule us, whether they can, uh, they can, if we can get by the statute of limitations, then we'll go from there. If not, then we're going to file a bill in the Senate um, asking that... Uh, you know these these bodies be uh, exhumed, uh, that they be given a proper burial, that DNA be done if that's possible now, and right. that their families be located, be given a decent burial, um, and uh, see if we can find the, any, any of these other bodies, uh, you know, which have disappeared. And then, uh, of course, I guess the bottom line on the rest of it is whether or not uh, uh, the state of Florida feels that they owe uh, restitution to any of these boys. Right. Or any I was for, for for those that are still living that that did this, what do you want to happen to them? What do you want to see happen? Well, I think most of them, uh, <clears throat> most of the guys uh, are very angry, especially at Mr. Tidwell and any of the others that would still be alive. Um, I thought about that for a lot of years. I actually spoke with Mr. Tidwell uh, back in uh, in 2001. He didn't know who I was because I was trying to locate Mr. Sealander, which um, sort of saved me from a couple of bad things there. And uh, I, after I talked with him, I started thinking, you know, do I really hate that man for beating me? Um, no, I don't think I do. Um, 
because if Mr. Tidwell hadn't have beaten me, Mr. Haddon would have. If Mr. Haddon wouldn't wouldn't have beaten me, the the preacher would have. If the preacher hadn't, the nurse would have. If the nurse hadn't, the dog would have. It's not it's not their fault. I mean, it's terrible. It, 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 it's really terrible that that these people had the heart in them, where they were disgusting human beings who could beat a child like that. But they were doing their job, even though it was wrong. I hold the state of Florida responsible for that. And you know, and that's that's really the sad part about it. They were they believed that part of their job was to severely brutalize children. Yeah, well, it's like I said, they thought they could beat the badness out of you and make you a good kid. Well, they did exactly the opposite. One day, somebody said, "Well, Dick Cologne, one of my friends, uh, well, actually, two of them now, uh, which are here, uh, became millionaires." And they did so because of what they learned at the Florida School for Boys. And they said, well, you know, uh, you became an author. We have a guy who's a uh, a professor at a university, uh, you know, two millionaires. Well, look what we did for them. I said, yeah, but you did a lot more for the mafia, too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. The, uh, in reference to, I, 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 I would like to read this one thing real quick. Um, it says, I've been asked many times if I feel the state of Florida owes me anything for the beatings and abuse I suffered. I could only reply by saying the state of Florida does not have enough money to pay me for what they did to me. However, what they do owe, they owe to my family. I walked out of that White House thinking I was no more than a piece of crap. I felt that I was stupid, dumb, retarded, unworthy of respect, much less deserving love, and that I had no worth to the world whatsoever. Though basically a kind man, for more than 40 years I worked medial jobs, leaving behind many a crying woman and innocent, confused young children, who also became unloved because of the lack of a father who was unable to show them love or affection, a man who never lived up to whatever his potential might have been, thereby not offering his children a college education and an opportunity of having a better life than did their stupid, dumb, retarded, unworthy, and disrespectful father. Yes, there is a debt to be paid. That's how I feel about it. Mm. Wow. Because they have to realize when you, when you mistreat a child, uh, it can go on for generations. I, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that uh, uh, the children I have now are, are good children. One got into trouble a bit for a while, and he's a bit of a hellion still. Uh, most of my children are good, they're responsible, they hold jobs, uh, they're good, kind fathers. Uh, my daughter's a good good woman. Um, and I would say of the abuse, and, and again, I don't think I ever spanked not one of my children, but you could hear me screaming uh, down the road six blocks. Uh, I would tell them to make the bed one time, and the next time it was an order. And I mean it was an order with almost hatred in my eyes. And uh, but I, I I never really physically abuse them, and uh, I just um, I am thankful that I learned to love through my grandchildren. Mm -hmm. uh, they can do no wrong, and I, I I don't think I ever once ever hugged my children, ever once. I never sat on the bed and read them a story. I never hugged them. Uh, I mean, I went fishing with them. Uh, this is one of the things I think that is very important real quick about an orphanage. When you institutionalize a child, whether he's in an orphanage or he's in the foster care system, uh, maybe not so much with good foster parents, but you'll follow what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I'll use the orphanage because that's a very good example. 
Hey, real quick, we got yeah. about 20 seconds left. Okay. Uh, Go ahead and hurry up yeah. real quick. Uh, when, when you institutionalize a child and then you release him and he goes and marries your daughter who was raised in a loving home, he's going to try to to make the life that he knows, right. which is an institutionalized, and your and your daughter's not going to take it. Yeah, that's the, when the damage is done. It just keeps going and going, and it spreads to the children. Yeah. All right. Well, sir, we've run out of time. We thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have to have you back on again. Sure, I'll be glad so to that you can share more of this with you. Uh, we've stopped streaming, but we're still recording here. So. I want to say, you know, thanks again for showing up and for, you know, just giving us this wonderful information. And, Greg, you have anything else? I'm speechless at this point, Brian. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm like, wow. It's tough. It's tough. But but, but I, I do I do want to say thank you for being transparent and, and telling your story. Okay. Um, holding, it, holding it in will only hurt more. Yeah, it does. I, I just... Uh, I, I hope that there were some listeners out there tonight. I've had people who've read my stories and they've written me and said, you know, we've been taking our kid and putting him in the closet. We didn't think that was abuse, but yeah, we can see now that it is. Because I wrote, I wrote many stories called, uh, you know, the closet. I made a video about that, a short film. And so I'm hoping somewhere out there tonight, somebody was listening, that you know they will stop doing something that they were doing, or maybe they were yelling at their kids, or. You know, I said make your bed. I mean, now move your little butt. You know, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think they think when they yell at their kids that it's going to fade away in a day or two. It doesn't. No. Mm. Wow. Well, with that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. We thank you so much for joining us tonight, and we hope that you come back and listen. And please, please, to all of our listeners, go back and listen to the show online, listen to the show again online, pass this information on to others, pass on the links, because this is something that people need to be aware of so it does not happen again. Because it says that those that forget the past are doomed to repeat it. But with that being said, we thank you, and we bid you good evening, and God bless you.